ladies and gentlemen, catchers of all ages, and to our listeners around the world, it's time for the only podcast by catchers, The Mound Visit, with your host, Tyler Goodrow, Chris News, and CJ Medlin, and on his way out to the mound first is Tyler Goodrow. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Mound Visit Podcast, the Catcher's Podcast Show. Before we jump into any number four, we want to give a shout out to our partners over at All Star Sports. Go pick up a 33 and a half inch donut training mitt. The donut is an absolute best mitt for working on quick transfer speeds. The vintage style catching mitt modernized with All Star black tan leather is a tool recommended by catchers, coaches, and teams for developing the fastest transfers. When received in the pocket correctly, high-speed balls can be caught and then transferred to the throwing hand. This also helps with general receiving skills as well. You get immediate feedback because balls caught properly will stick in the pocket or drop straight down while balls received incorrectly will rebound away. Okay, everybody. Global crisis that's going on right now? Again, I'll reiterate, it sucks. Baseball will be played this year. Do not worry. Keep working. Get after it. Find the way to do the work. All right, we're all with you. We're all standing behind you. We're in this fight together. All right, now it's time for any number four. All right, hey everyone, welcome back to the Mound Visit, the Catcher's Podcast Show. I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Goodrow. And on behalf of Chris and CJ, thanks again for tuning in, especially during this time of uncertainty. Hopefully, we can serve you as an outlet and a platform to assist you while you're all dealing with this pandemic inside. Please be safe. So let's now shift gears and start any number four. We're excited to bring on our guest. He is the first base coach and catching coach for the Chicago Cubs, Craig Driver. Craig, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about some baseball in this time when there hasn't been a lot of baseball to talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, Craig, um, go into, I guess, first and foremost, you know, maybe some of our viewers want to hear about kind of what's going on in the background like this, and and then we'll shift gears into where you started and and, um, where you're at today. So what are they telling you? um, Yeah, they're not telling me much, to be honest. I I don't think that you guys are devout of any information that I'm getting. Um, I think right now they're – being pretty upfront with everybody about what's going on. So I think that, uh, you know, we're just kind of waiting to hear as anybody else is. Um, we've got some guys that are staying down here in Arizona. Some guys are at home. Um, I think there might be some guys going to Chicago. And I think that's kind of the case with most major league teams from what I've heard from other, other guys that I know across the league is that, you know, some guys are at their off season homes. Some guys are at their spring training facilities. Some guys are at their stadium homes for the season. Um, and everybody's just kind of waiting to get more information wherever they feel the most settled, the most safe, whatever it may be. Well, uh, had they talked to you guys about maybe potentially doing workouts, starting back up back at the spring training sites or actually doing it at the major league stadiums? Uh, they haven't talked to us about that yet. So that's anything that we've talked about in that regard is purely speculative, speculative. So um, I guess my assumption would maybe be that it would be in Arizona because the weather is, you know, more assuredly nice than it would be in Chicago. But yeah, I, I, I don't have any idea. And they haven't told us anything about that. Especially since this thing hates the heat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it seems so. Right. All right. Well, um, 
let's go into a little bit about your background. Just kind of give us where you started, um, you know, where you played at, uh, and then go into Yale and, and walk us through, you know, with the Phillies and then where you're at today with, with the Cubs. Yeah, so I, I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. I went to college at a small college on the West Coast called the University of Puget Sound. Um, so played there for three years after a year at a junior college in uh, Eastern Washington. Um, and then got an opportunity to start coaching there. Um, right after I graduated, I had been working for this like travel team, more or less, that I played for um, in the summer times um, after my junior. And then I was ready to do it after my senior year as well. Um, coaching like a 14U and then a 15U team that I kind of had taken up. Um, and my college coach needed some, some young coaches that could afford to live off of a very, very small stipend. So, um, he hired myself and actually a guy named Kaino Correa, who's the bench coach for the San Francisco Giants. Um, him and I were college teammates and, um, we coached there for, for one year at the University of Puget Sound. Um, then I went to Central Washington to get my master's and coached there for a couple of years at Division II school and right in the middle of Washington, um, a town called Ellensburg, which is a, a small town with pretty much just encompassed by the, the university there itself. Um, and then I actually went back to the University of Puget Sound for a couple more years before I went to Yale, um, was working with uh, a lot of guys that I had recruited in that first stint at Puget Sound and also some got like, I think at that point, the guys that were freshmen were then seniors. Um, so some, a couple of guys that I had still played with, um, and then was there for two years, got an opportunity, um, through a coaching buddy of mine, Tanner Swanson, who's now the Yankees catching coach, um, at Yale, um, Tucker Frawley and, um, Tanner had connected on Twitter of all places as all of us <laughs> have. And, uh, um, they, they were looking for a catching guy at Yale as the, their catching guy had left to um, actually go be the head coach at a prep school. And um, they kind of just reached out to the right guy. Tanner texted me and he was like, Hey, what do you think about this? Would you be interested in, you know, being the, the second assistant at Yale? You know, it's a, it's a small stipend, but a bigger one that you're getting at Puget Sound most likely, you know, what do you think? And um, I said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, an opportunity to get into division one baseball and be able to recruit at the division one level would be something that I'd want to do. And so I, I took up on that, moved all the way across the country, um, spent a year and a half there, one season um, where we had a lot of success. I was pretty fortunate to walk into a team that was um, had, had done well, had reached the Ivy league championship game the year before um, and hadn't pulled through. And we were able to, to pull that out and play in the Oregon state regional play in the regional final, actually. Um, to make it that far was pretty cool. Um, and then kind of going into that next year, I'd gotten some opportunities to speak at some things. I spoke at KetcherCon, um, Zan Barksdale's thing, obviously, that you guys I'm sure know about. Um, and one of the guys that spoke with me with, was Ryan Sienko, who's the Dodgers catching coordinator. And um, he obviously had some close connections with our manager in Philly, Gabe Kapler, as Cap had hired him when he was the director of player development in L.A., um, and they had kind of like, I, I guess, unbeknownst to me, had kind of pinpointed me as a guy that might be a, a fit for the role that I took in Philly. And they wanted to see like how I, how I performed in this catcher con setting where I could talk in front of people and talk about catching and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I, I guess they liked what they saw. And, um, by the time I got off the stage, Cap had, had texted me and he said, Hey, th Hey, Craig, this is Gabe Kapler with the Philadelphia Phillies. And he didn't, he didn't text me anything else. Uh, there was not a question or anything like that, but it was just, a <laughs> uh, but I remember sending probably 15 responses back and not actually, actually clicking send on any of them. And then finally just saying, Hey Gabe, what's up? <laughs> and, uh, 
<laughs> so I was like, I don't know what else to say. So um, I, yeah, I ended up working through the interview process with, with Cap, um, which worked out really well. We got a chance to to connect over the phone and in person a couple of times. Um, I talked to our other bullpen catcher and catching coach, Bob Stumpo, a couple of times who um, was an instrumental part of our success in Philadelphia and somebody that's, I think, continuing to do a really good job there with their catchers and um, as well as Dusty Wathen, who's a third base coach and caught in professional baseball for 15 years or so. Um, and so he worked with us as well um, and got through that process. They hired me. They took a chance on a guy that's never been in professional baseball at all. And, um, you know, I, I kind of walked into that first spring training going like, all right, let's just kind of see what happens more so <laughs> than um, let's go change everything right away. Um, and, and I was pretty lucky to have a group of guys that were pretty um, willing to, you know, do whatever and try things out and have things not go well and um, just go through that process in spring training and figure out, you know, what was going to make them the best catchers possible. And, um, you know, so we took them pretty slow. Um, a lot of that stuff was more relationship building than it was technique based early. Um, you know, we kind of built our spring training like regimen more on like an environment more so than like a skill set, um, trying to get guys, you know, working at or above game speed and kind of going from there and seeing what they could do. Um, obviously, you know, that ended up um, allowing us to kind of have the conversations with our players that we needed to have and get those guys more comfortable and um, more comfortable with us. That worked really well and uh, obviously it had some, some success from there. So, yeah, I think that's the long and short of it. Craig, did you find, your, did you find yourself your first uh, spring camp with the Phillies you know, just kind of getting caught up almost like a, like a fan. You see some of the old timers walking around, get a chance to meet them and like, wow, holy crap. I'm, you know, I'm here with these guys. And, you know, you see yeah. a lot of, uh, a lot of those. I know Jimmy Rollins usually was, <clears throat> I think he was still playing. Um, you know, I, I came up, Phillies were the first team that I was drafted with. So Carpenter yeah. complex, all that stuff, you know, mm -hmm. real familiar with, but yeah, you, your first camp, you go down there and uh, you see all the, you know, all these big name people and, you know, did you find yourself getting caught up or how, what was your adjustment going in and, and talking to him and say, Hey, um, you know, here's what we're, here's what we're working on. Here's what we're trying to accomplish or, or just kind of getting settled. Yeah. Um, I, I think I would be naive to say that I, that it wasn't like kind of a, a culture shock and, you know, something where you're looking at like, man, I was watching these guys on TV, you know, six months ago and now I'm working with them. Um, you know, I, I think it was, you know, it's, it's probably like more of a, you, you notice it more when you sit in like the coach's room and you listen to Larry Bo and Charlie Manuel tell stories from 7am to 9am every day. Um, and just <laughs> listen to those guys go back and forth and, and all that. And you, I mean, you have J roll and you have um, Shane Victorino and Bobby Abreu and Brian Howard, a lot of those like ex Philly greats um, rolling through there. Um, but I, I think for me, it helped me more, more than anything being comfortable saying like, Hey, I, I'm, I can kind of just watch and allow myself to go in at the right time. Um, you know, like the, in the Cubs organization, their, their player development staff, like talks about like having one bullet and waiting to use the one bullet. And, you know, so for me, that was like a really good opportunity to, you know, wait for that right time to, to use that one bullet with our players and, you know, not feel like I had to dive right in because, you know, it was probably something that was a little foreign to me. So I could kind of let it be foreign, watch my way through what was happening and kind of go from there as the spring went along. I want to go back into something that you said um, about kind of just, you know, 
little bit of the environment aspect of it and that, you know, anymore, it's not so much about, hey, this is what I did when I played. And I heard somebody say this a long time ago. Somebody said, it's not about what I did, but about what the players care about what we can do for them. And I wanted to go into, you know, you had worked with Jorge Alfaro um, that, that time before. And then, you know, he got obviously traded in the Cisco uh, Sanchez um, trade. But just kind of what, what was your first uh, encounter with him? And, and what were the conversations like that you were having with, with somebody like that? That was, you know, everybody saw the arm when he threw the ball down to second base at 93 miles an hour. And that was... The, everybody wowed at that, but you know, his receiving numbers changed. So I guess what were some of those conversations that you would have with those ball players or, and like you said, you listened, but what was, what would be your responses back to somebody like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that first year was interesting because we didn't like to be a hundred percent honest with you guys, we didn't know what the answer was. And I, I, don't, I don't think I can safely say that I know what the answer is now. I think that it's still something that's ever evolving and we're trying to figure out. Um, but what, what we had figured out from the time that I was hired to the beginning of spring training was basically that we had a decent blueprint for what the guys do well that receive the ball well. We didn't know as much as we know now, um, having like been through it with guys in the trenches and figured out what they feel and talked to a little bit more about it but we we knew that you know for the most part the low-hanging fruit is at the bottom of the zone um it's on the opposite side of the plate from the batter it's the ball can be moved more than it um we traditionally had thought it could um and you know those were the kind of the the general tenants that we started with and we and our our goal was like okay so if, if that's what we know we can do how do we put those things into play? Um, so the the first thing that we used um, that I think was really important was more of a, a hitting thing that I kind of stole from Jason Ochart at, at Driveline. And we were using it at Yale a lot with our hitters, but not so much with our catchers, but the idea of you know, speed, velocity, um, and, and training you know, at or above game speed. And that gave our guys the opportunity to, you know, what we would tell them is like, hey, we want you to move the ball more right like move it more than you feel comfortable with and um and that was kind of the beginning of what we started doing with those guys and they would go like all right do you think that's too much do you think it's not enough where do you think and we and kind of what i was going off of is like hey just think about trying to move everything to the middle of your chest protector and um you know what you feel is you know when you're making that big move is that guys tend to feel like they're either making a you know a concise one part move or they're making a long two-part move where they drag the ball away from the zone and they pull it back, um, or they drag it down and they pull it up. Um, and that's what, you know, we so kind of buy that use of perceived velocity and the opportunity to, you know, get, put them in some environments where, you know, the ball would tell them a lot. We didn't have to give them all the answers, but we, we told them what we wanted them to achieve um, in terms of angling the ball back to their body, in terms of moving the ball up, in terms of, you know, how fast the ball was going to be coming to them and then let them figure out a lot of the answers on their own. And, um, you know, I think with a guy like Jorge or a guy like Katie or Wilson or any of these guys, you know, like they're, they're so athletic that a lot of times they figure it out without me having to tell them what the answer is, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, that's a, I love that. That's awesome. You know, being able to say that you're using something from the hitting standpoint to adjust and to work with your catchers. Now, um, I think, 
something that I want to know and, and maybe the other two on the call do, and maybe some of our listeners want to know is getting JT Real Muto, you know, uh, a gold glove winner. What were some of the conversations then going to him? Because he was a guy that would, and if you watch videos and if you, if you study the catching position, you can see that his angles weren't great. But now it's kind of like, um, you know, kind of this, this extension through the ball, um, you know, not necessarily stopping it, but just bringing it to the point where the, the umpire has to make a split second reaction to say ball or strike. So is that something that you guys, you know, discussed as well as kind of like, hey, you know, let's present the target, um, let's release, let's relax, and then let's work back up through the zone. Um, I guess go into, if you're willing to, go into that uh, yeah. a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think for us, as much as it looks like he's working so much from ex- uh, flexion into extension, one of our biggest goals with JT was we're more of extension and flexion. So see with him in 2018, a lot was a lot of like reach out fully extended when the ball made contact with his glove and stab through the ball. And so like the ball takes him for a ride at times. Um, and then what you tended to see more as, you know, 2019 progressed and evolved was that he would work from, you know, flexion out to extension when he made contact with the ball. And then he would actually let the arm flex to, um, kind of handle the leverage a little bit better. Um, because what you see with guys, I mean, much like you'd see it like an offensive lineman who's blocking somebody is that when they get like fully locked out, they, they don't have as much strength, um, and they lose their leverage, but when they, you know, work out to it, right, they get to touch the ball at the highest point, but then when they allow their arm to flex back and bend back towards their body, they actually get into a stronger position. And so the ball works a little bit more naturally, um, and keeps it on their strength line a little bit more. Um, you know, like what, what I talk to our guys a lot about is just keeping the ball like as close to their center of mass as possible, but still making contact with it out in front as much as possible. So it's kind of a delicate balance of like, how do I, how do I get out there to make contact, but then bring it back toward me so I can keep my strength. Because if I have to just go fully extended and catch and hold, it's really hard if the ball's moving down and um, working against me. But if I can use some sort of flexion, as the ball hits my glove, once I'm already extended out at it, then I can move the ball up and I can also move the ball back towards my body into my strength. Basically kind of like a bio, biomechanical movement of, of pulling everything back to your strength, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think that, I think more than anything else, like what you see with catchers is they struggle receiving the ball when the ball's away from, from their center of mass. So like yep. one of the areas that's an obvious concern for catchers, especially guys that are like at the major league level who are getting graded and like having to wear the inevitable, like you're not a good framer because the metrics say this are, they oftentimes are catching staffs where the ball is not where they think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's one of the things that they feel like they get docked for more than anything else. So it's a matter of figuring out how do you get your center of mass behind the ball when the ball is not where you think it's going to be. Um, so what you see with a lot of guys is that they tend, and this is, I would say professionally and amateur catchers is they tend to move left on every pitch ball. So if the balls are left side, they're really strong. If the ball's on their right side, mm-hmm. then they're still moving left because when you go to throw, you turn left. Okay. When your gloves on your left side, so you tend to move everything over here on the left side of your body rather than on the right side of your body. So if we can get catchers to, you know, use their body a little bit better and not be moving left 
so naturally and just move left when the ball is left, um, then you see them having a lot more success with missed pitches. Because um, what you see, especially at the major league level, is like this trying to throw fastballs in and then yanking them to the outer half, having them go through the strike zone, but having the catcher turn left and push it out of the zone as they just try to go catch it, right. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So how does that um, how that, does that affect them with with uh, I'm sorry to interrupt with yeah, no. now JT is very unique and if you, you guys are working on that his transfer I mean obviously he's been he's been the best of the best throwing people out the last few years you know and is he a guy that is I've seen videos where he's almost fully extended at impact and has his body go around the ball um, what, what does he kind of do as far as manipulating his body to get in such a good position to not only allow us an accurate throw, but such a strong throw is what's he about 87, 88 down to second, you know, yeah. as far as the velocity goes there too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for like, I will be honest with you guys in that like what, G, what I taught JT about throwing is as limited as any of you guys. <laughs> he, I, we had a conversation on maybe the first or second day of spring training in 2019 where I literally said to him after we did some throwing stuff and I didn't, we didn't do drills. We just kind of let him do it. Like all the guys at that point in spring training were just kind of doing what they do and then making some throws. And I went up to him and I said, Hey man, if I ever tell you anything about throwing, remind me of this conversation. And tell me to shut up, <laughs> okay? Um, because that is something that come, for him it comes so naturally that you just don't want to get in the way. Uh, he, comes, right? he was a freakish athlete. I don't know what you knew about background in, in Oklahoma, but as a shortstop yeah. from Carl Albert coming up, the dude was just. I mean, he was a, a freakish athlete in general. I mean, the dude just quick and get rid of it, throw it. I mean, could throw the crap out of the football as well. I mean, just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So he, um, but because of that, like we, we didn't do a ton with him. I mean, what you see from a peripheral, um, of his, of his throwing technique that I think he starts earlier than anyone else in the league. That's the thing that allows him to get him. Um, he does like, he does some like kind of interesting setup maneuvering, um, as he goes through where he'll like kind of start in his hind stance and then some what the runner does, he'll, pick and choose his setup from there so you'll see him like jump into a like a staggered runner stance of the guy's heels you'll see him jump into a split stance of the guys um you know not gonna go or into a regular one of these stance like he'll just he has an ability to like read the runner and do that at one time which is not something that we taught him it's just something that he kind of did on his own um and so because of that, he's like so staggered to the point where he's kind of already in line and he's just getting his feet in line. And he's just working through the ball. Um, but, you know, what, what you see with his hands when he transfers the ball is that the ball is always really close to his chest, right? Like he, he has a really good ability and a really good feel for his glove and the ball in space in comparison to his body so that the ball is never really far away from his body. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's always kind of keeping himself as close to it as he can without like with still keeping some leverage in his arms. So he's not like short arm, like alligator arm in there, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the, the middle, middle infielder turning to, you know, double play, really letting the ball get yep. to him and exchange from the center. Of the yep. byline. I can remember him when I come back in my off season and watching him playing in high school, uh, when we go around with the area code games and kind of watching guys around Oklahoma, it's where, where I'm based out of is getting mm-hmm. to see him when he was in high school before he got drafted. It's just, he, he would catch a few times, but more often than not, he'd be in the middle infield unless somebody could catch him if he was pitching. Yeah. But there was I a very few that. times where, you know, he would catch, but the dude is just incredible with what he could do with the, allowing to see the ball travel so well. 
and mm-hmm. letting it get deep was, was, wasn't, was really impressive. Um, would you say with his ability to set up, kind of like you said, he'll get into a, an, like an exaggerated, uh, staggered stance where you will up the runner. Um, just to me, it looks like he does, he, he sets up a little bit later than, than more of your average catchers. Once he gets, get a sign, he sets up a little bit later than the rest. And that is kind of like you're talking about being able to read the runner and, and, and justify what he's going to set up into. Would that be a good, I guess, guessment to say that's kind of what he does is just sets up a little bit later and reads yeah. everything else and the trust of the pitching staff one, but understanding where they're going to be, if they yeah. miss where they miss at. Yeah. I mean, I, for him, like, I know like he, he's doing something very similar, like what Mitch Garver does where he, like Mitch will like kick out when he sees the runner doesn't go and he'll stay in that, like, right knee down to transfer and throw if the guy steals. Um, but he just does it in a, in a different way. So, I mean, the, the positive thing at our level is that there's so much, you know, sign stealing, as I'm sure you guys have heard about. Uh, they, uh, they, you know, our guys are very wary of setting up too early. So they, they really need to wait anyway. So if they can, mm-hmm. like, kind of lock their eyes on the runner and wait to make that, that, that set up until they see what the runner does, then you can set up late and you can prepare yourself to do whatever you need to do when it comes to, you know, guys feeling, you know, receiving a pitch, blocking a pitch, whatever, maybe. Absolutely. Craig, do you have uh, – do you see some of the younger guys trying to mimic him a lot as far as the way that he throws? I, I notice when, when he gets rid of it, you know, his – his right foot, it's almost like he gets it underneath him as quickly as possible. There's not a lot of, not a lot of gained movement, um, and he, he gets loaded into that back leg exceptionally quick where you find other guys that will go through uh, like an L position to try to get into position or guys that will you know, almost get a modified jab step to come forward where he kind of seems centered and balanced the entire throw. And even though you know, I'll look at some pitches that he goes where he looks like he's almost completely sideways when the ball hits his glove and he's just kind of like, you know, hit his glove out of his hand, but yet he's still using his, his body to throw with and not just relying on his arm. You see some of the younger kids that have, you know, might even change their, um, their styles would have gotten them to the levels that they're at just because you tend to, I mean, everyone tries to, we all did it. You know, when you, you got your big league guy in camp and your, your main guy and everyone tries to kind of mimic him a little bit, do you find a lot or, telling kids that hey look this is you know you got a, an exceptional athlete right here just do the stuff that you're comfortable with and we'll make tiny adjustments and try, instead of trying to switch your whole approach to it just because you see someone who's doing it yeah I mean I, I think it's it's hard to it's hard to say exactly I mean it's not something that we're teaching necessarily like I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in that like you got to figure out how to like get your back hip loaded and you know, I, I think in general, keeping the foot more beneath your body allows your your hip to load easier. Um, the more that your foot goes away from your center of mass, the longer your body has to catch up before you can load your hip. Um, so, you know, I think in general, it's a good practice. But, you know, to be honest, like for, for me, I'm not – I don't spend a lot of time with throwing mechanics. I spend a lot of time with certain guys on throwing sequence. Um, and making sure that their sequence works correctly and athletically, um, but exactly where things go isn't as important to me um, as it may once was. I think that I spent a lot of time with like exact throwing mechanics when I was coaching in college, and then when you are working with professional guys, you know you find like a lot of those guys have the kind of the prerequisite arm strength that they don't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff, um, and you know 
oftentimes we're just thinking, all right, how can we get your body sequenced well so the ball flight is as, is the best possible ball flight? So like you know, the our backup in Philly, Andrew Knapp, like made some really significant strides in his throwing numbers, both throwing guys out and in pop time and arm strength velocity on throws to second base. And you know, he like he just spent a lot of time working really hard on getting his foot underneath him and getting his back hip loaded. And that was, you know, ultimately what we felt like uh led to those gains for him. Um, you know, it wasn't anything more than just like starting to create a consistent routine where he could work on loading the hip, you know, every other day, you know, something along those lines, um, to get him ready to go. And it translated into the game way quicker than we thought it would. I uh, like what you said right there. I think that's important too for for the younger audience or the catchers to think about too. Is if you got arm strength, you're going to have arm strength. That's great, but we got to work on being able to make sure we get a good sequence and and getting the right foot down is what we I try to hold on to a lot with guys is getting the right foot set as quick as we can, and getting it balanced is going to give us the ultimate chance to actually get a good clean throw, accurate throw, or some, with something behind it. You know, we got some of these kids out there trying to aim the ball upwards to get to second base, especially when they make a a twenty or thirty foot jump between like seventh grade or sixth grade to going to 90 for bases now all of a sudden they're throwing uphill high as they can and jumping out front as far as they can just to get the ball there and then it, it stems to their muscle memory or mechanics as they get older in high school and then you see these guys throwing a foot out in front of home plate and and showcase work and they don't have any kind of rhythm or feel staying behind the plate where with butter in the box and I, I like what you said there I, I like that I think that's what we need to focus on with a lot of our younger guys in our audience too is when they work is not so much about overall mechanics but making sure we get the best throw off for them in a good yeah. in a good sequence i like that yeah and I, I think i mean one of the things this this was kind of an inadvertent fine more than anything else with jt but like he bounces some throws to second base that like we start we kind of started using that as like a general practice for a lot of guys is like think about how you can make a long hop throw to second base and like really backspin a ball on a long mm-hmm. hop to second and we found that was one of the best ways to get guys to increase their, their just overall ball flight quality mm-hmm. um, was really by thinking about, okay, get your feet underneath you, get on top of the ball, get a, create a long hop, allow yourself to do that. Um, and, and we found like, like their ball flight started getting way better as they started going back up to throws in the air. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we, we definitely mixed in. And like for younger guys, like the more that I think about like coaching kids, like thinking back to that, like I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't shy away from telling them just to not try to throw the ball over the second base in the air at all, and just yep. use their, wow. use whatever arm strength they have to throw it to, you know, a long hop distance from second base, yep. let it bounce and let it run to the bag, um, and throw it as hard as they can. You know mm-hmm. what, what you see with guys when they first try to do that is they like try to like place the one hop, but really if you like power <laughs> through the one hop, right. it creates like a bounce pass right mm-hmm. in the middle infielders mm-hmm. catch it as easily as they do a ball in the air. Um, and so like, like for JT, like the reason he does it when he doesn't have a good grip on the ball and it's like a, it's more of a feel thing, but like, mm-hmm. it was absolutely something that we started doing with nap. And it, I think it definitely helped him like find his extension, um, you know, and get to the spot where he needed to get to, to create the ball flight that he wanted to get on the throws that were in the air. Nice. I want to shift gears a little bit to, uh, where you're at now, um, Chicago yeah. Cubs and, um, First thing I want to ask you, though, is that, you know, I read articles in, about um, Tanner Swanson, your buddy, and, um, mm-hmm. and about the player comps between uh, Mitch Garver and Gary Sanchez and how he has adjusted the way and the style of trying to create, um, you know, just a more efficient, uh, uh, you know, receiving techniques and whatnot. 
working with now going into Wilson Contreras, would you feel like, and, and just my opinion alone, I feel like uh, Contreras and, and um, uh, Real Muto are pretty similar in the terms of their athleticism. Did you see, you know, and, and I know that um, I had listened to a broadcast uh, in spring training. You had the headset on there and um, you had mentioned that, you know, Contreras was already working on his receiving and, and his work ethic is unparalleled to anybody else. Um, but did you see some similarities with JT and, and, and Wilson? And if anything, what were some of the advice or the things that you um, would discuss with him? Yeah, I mean, I, I think first of all, like, I mean, one of the big messages for, for Wilson was like, hey, we're not trying to make you into anybody else. We're trying to let you, you're going to be Wilson Contreras and like, we're going to make you the best version of yourself that you can be. Um, for me, I just, I, I don't see a ton of value in, um, you know, trying to draw a ton of parallels between players because just, like they may have like really similar skill sets and really similar, you know, athleticism levels and actions and things of that nature, but they, they, they may not learn the same way. They most likely don't have the same type of personalities. So like, it just makes it really difficult when you start actually working with the player, if you're trying to make one guy into another guy. So I, I think for me, that was the first thing I told Wilson was, I said like, Hey man, like, I don't want to make you into anyone else. I want to make you into the best version of yourself that we can. Um, so I was like, I'm probably going to tell you a lot of things that happened with JT just because that's my most recent experience with a starting catcher in the major leagues. So, but I mean, on, on a personal side, I feel like I've firmly worked with the three most athletic catchers in major league baseball, because as much as like Corey Alfaro has like a different body type than the other two, like he is like the things that he can do, not only throwing, but also like fielding bunts and a variety of different things are, are, are incredibly impressive as well. Um, so it's been, I've been really lucky in that regard to just have these guys that can, that can really do some special things. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think with Wilson, it was, it was more, the message was more, how do we get you to do what you can do as well as possible? Um, not so much, you know, how can we make you like JT, um, or how can we make you like Jorge or whatever it may be? Um, so like what, one of the things that you'll, you see, and like one of the things I was talking about that interview is that like Wilson will set up in a traditional stance almost every time. Um, and that was something that he kind of had wanted to do in a a kind of a project that he spearheaded over the off season. And, but that was all before I met him and we'd worked together and I'd been hired probably even that he started doing that. Um, and so my, my kind of initial thought was like, Oh, I don't know if that's the best idea. Um, and then I actually went back and looked at the metrics for how he actually performed when he was set up on one knee versus when he was in a regular stance. And he's like by far the anomaly in the league in that he performs, um, markedly better in a traditional stance than he does in a one knee stance. Um, and why exactly that is, I'm not sure I haven't dove into that, but, um, that was kind of all the backing that I needed to be able to make that, that adjustment in my head is just knowing that he's had more success there allows him to get more comfortable and ultimately like when you're comfortable, you can control your move better than anything else. So if he feels comfortable there, then let's go with that. That's kind of like so that's kind of where I every, every catcher is different. You know, everybody's body types without being able to see their internal biomechanics of how everybody functions and moves where they're going to be most comfortable and, and most efficient. You know, that's where their confidence is going to rely into. And, you know, if you saw, yeah. I'm sure you saw his uh, workouts and stuff that he posted over Instagram and Twitter that he worked on with the receiving and stuff in the off season, you could see how much, in my mind, smoother he was in his transitions, mm-hmm. in his setups, and especially his glove presentation when he finished. 
I mean, just, just looked tremendously smooth and compared to last year, in, in my opinion, I'm not where you're at, but just the times of working with guys and being around guys that come back in the offseason, watching them develop and, and change, he looked ultimately just better from last year. Yeah, I just like yeah. what you said is everybody's different. Everybody's got their own style and their own body movements that's going to be more efficient to them. Yeah, and I, I think for, for Wilson, he is a guy that his athleticism is a gift and a curse, being that, you know, he can do anything, but it also allows him to try anything. And sometimes for him, consistency is um, what he needs more than anything else. So right. by being more consistent with the setup and more consistent with his hand load, um, kind of what you saw in those workouts in the offseason, he found a lot of success immediately just by saying, like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this a little easier. Right. So like uh, the way I think about it a lot is like, all right, so if you have a hitter, you're not going to have him, you know, sometimes hit with a like big gangster leg kick and sometimes with a toe tap and sometimes with just a heel load. Like you're going to kind of pick one thing and that's going right. to kind of be his approach. Um, and I think with catchers, like so often there are there are certain guys and particularly guys that do it well, like an Austin Hedges or somebody like that, that utilize all these different setups and, you know, in all these different situations and things of that nature that you know you're like okay this is how you should do it this should be the blueprint um but with some guys it just creates you know too many different starting points and and nowhere to go back to when they're when they don't feel right and i, I think for for these guys especially when you're you know the, with the quality of stuff that they're catching they need to be able to have a place where they can go back to being comfortable and it's like all right if things go awry this is where I go to. This is my happy place that allows me to get comfortable again and kind of control the environment and go from there. With, with you saying that, um, noticing that Wilson has, you know, a, a high level of, of athleticism, would you say he's got a lot of hypermobility to what he can do with his lower half is why you said he can try so many different things, which is like you said, a gift and a curse at the same time, but being able to find that, that consistency of where you're able to stay in that one, that one point can, as you know, as you go through a season. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think ultimately that's part of the reason that Wilson tends to um, perform better out of a conventional setup is he is incredibly mobile. And I think that might also factor into why he didn't do as well out of a one knee setup. He kind of would occasionally get himself into some interesting positions that weren't necessarily textbook. Um, right. Typically, the you know, the one knee setup was, you know, really kind of brought into play as a means to get guys that weren't as mobile lower and to control the bottom of the zone better um so that's why like for a guy like Jorge Alfaro it worked really well because he wasn't that mobile even JT was much more mobile than Jorge but not as mobile as Wilson um it opens up some stuff for him that mm -hmm. you know it's it aren't options for for other guys um so it's just a matter of figuring out like once again like how it best fits for the person so if you have like incredible mobility then maybe the options aren't as necessary you know um whereas like we have a guy in camp with us josh fegley who started for the a's last year mm -hmm. um and is like incredibly tight one of the tightest movers that you're going to see where you know getting him on one knee more often is is helping him kind of open up the bottom of the zone and get to some positions that he couldn't get to out of our conventional stance when he's been catching since i mean He's, he's the same age as me. He's 30, 31, almost 32. And I mean, he's caught for the majority of his life and he's never caught off one knee prior to the spring training. So um, it's just a matter of figuring out, you know, how, what makes their body comfortable accessing the bottom of the zone. Um, and I think hip mobility is a big part of, you know, assessing whether or not mm -hmm. one knee setup is appropriate for a guy or kick out is appropriate. You know, that right. will tell you a lot of that. 
what uh what have you found or noticed if, if you have any at all between the pitchers and the correlation with catchers that go one knee um any any dislikes or anything from pitchers it's like man i don't want you sitting with a one knee at all or you know i, I need to see this you know situationally or you know have you seen that kind of stuff through camp yet or had that been brought up in pitcher catcher meetings stuff like that um, yeah, I mean, I don't think many guys are really concerned with catcher setting up on one knee. I think what they, some guys do have an issue with is like the glove going to the ground, um, or the glove, like starting on the ground, especially. Um, so certain guys like want to see more glove target than others. Um, but at the end of the day, like as catching guys, we all need to remember that like none of this stuff matters if the guy on the mound isn't good. So as much as we want to have like, our catchers be as good as possible and <laughs> perform as well as receivers and blockers and throwers as they can, like if the guy on the mound is getting crushed, it doesn't matter how well you catch it because you're never catching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So we want to make sure that like, I mean, like we had a meeting with like one of the things that's been cool about having David Ross as our manager is that he's been, um, you know, really into like pitcher and catcher meetings throughout pitcher catcher camp. And um, he's, he he's really started some cool conversations and and one of them for me was like hey like i in front of the group and i was like listen guys like none of this goes without you guys so if you guys need a certain thing setup wise visual wise tell us come talk to us talk to us awesome. about what you're seeing talk yep. to us about you know because part of it is you know this may be a learning curve thing where the guys are doing stuff that maybe we don't actually want them to do because mm -hmm. they're still learning how to make the move that we're asking them to make um, and the other thing, maybe just, you know, for a certain guy, you need to see a different target than you do with somebody else. Um, so we are like very persistent with our pitching staff that they need to come have conversations with me, have conversations with Rossi, have conversations with the catchers, you know, tell them what you can see, what you can't see, what you need to see, um, so that you can have success. But also at the same time, like having that conversation with the pitchers saying like, okay, what do you need to see? And what, what do you think you need to see? Because a lot of times, like, what they actually need to see isn't necessarily um, what they think they need to see, if that makes sense. So it's like, I think I need to see the glove up high when I throw a high fastball. And it's like, well, what if you just threw it at my mask? How would that work? Right. And you see that, and they're like, oh, I never thought about that. And you're like, how, how can you pitch in the major leagues and not have thought about that? But right. that kind of stuff. they're pitchers. Really <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we, as long as we can have that conversation and have that as an open dialogue, um, I think that's really, really helpful. And, you know, I, I have a pretty good idea at this point in spring training of, well, I guess I had a good idea at this point in spring <laughs> training before it got suspended um, that like what guys, you know, had some more reservations about things. And I'll, I'll just go ask them when they, when they throw to certain guys, like, Hey, what do you see there? Is that good? Is that what you need to see? Is that not enough of what you need to see? Could they move the glove more? Could they move it less? Could they start it lower? Whatever it may be. And like, they'll give me a lot of feedback in terms of, you know, what they, what they can and can't see and we'll kind of go from there. Awesome. With the, with all the technology that's in place right now, like Edutronic and WinVR and, and all this stuff, how much is that utilized with you guys right now or has it been utilized during spring training um, working with your guys from, you know, either big league camp or even some of the guys on my league camp or, or is it utilized at that point down there? Um, you know, I don't really do anything with our minor league guys with the exception of the guys that are, are minor league players in big league camp. So I can't speak to that. Um, that's not really my realm. Um, Mark Johnson is our catching coordinator and he does an outstanding job with those guys down there getting them ready. So, um, we, what exactly he's doing, like, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I know he's doing an excellent job. Gotcha. Um, in terms of, we don't use a ton of tech to be honest. Like I watch a ton of video. Um, uh, there's like very rarely is there a time 
especially early in camp before we start playing games where there is a catcher catching without a video camera on them. Um, so like pretty much every bullpen they catch will be on video. Pretty much every drill work session will be on video. So I can go back and watch that stuff. Um, you know, cause obviously their time is more valuable than mine is. So then that allows me to like be more productive in the time that they're at the stadium. Um, if, even if it means that I'm going to go back through after the workout and rewatch the entire day and find the stuff that I want to find, you know, think back to pitches that I can remember that, you know, looked good or looked bad and see if they were at, if they actually did or not in video. Um, but that's like, for me, that's more of the, the testing grounds, um, for, you know, success in, at the spring training time, um, than any other tech that, maybe may or may not being be being used right now so gotcha. i'm not doing a time now well on the on the topic of uh, of rossi I, I got a chance to meet him a handful of times and he seems like a, a a great guy i mean fantastic guy which is really really cool um how'd that all come about like how what's your connection to to ross or how how well do you guys know each other prior to to getting over with the cubs or is this something that was just just came open and then you guys knew each other and said hey i got a spot or how'd that all come uh, filter out yeah so i mean i i'd met rossi one time before i got hired um we were because he was working for espn we had an espn game and they wanted mm -hmm. to do like a segment on jt the game actually ended up getting rain, rained out so they never did it um but i had gone over to jt just to talk to him about like taste stuff that we want to talk about on tv stuff that we maybe want to shy away from in terms of topics on tv um because like at the end of the day like as much as you know this is life it's receiving is a is a deception of the umpire so like the perception of what the umpires hear is important mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that the messaging aligns with um you know what what we're teaching and i think oftentimes right. it can be kind of that line can be kind of blurred when we go from you know what we're training into you know what's actually being what we're actually doing if that makes sense mm -hmm. um so yeah, so we were having that conversation, and Rossi actually came over in the middle of it, and he's like, "I'm the guy from ESPN that wants to talk to you, so why don't you, um, why don't you tell me, tell me what you guys were saying?" And so we ended up giving him like a kind of a short rundown, and they ended up not using the segment at all, um, just because <laughs> the game got rained out. But um, that was my my brief introduction to him. Um, but we hadn't really had a chance to to talk a whole lot. Um, our our bullpen coach in Chicago was the pitching coach in Philly for the last two years. And he's mm -hmm. one of my close friends, Chris Young, not the one that went to Princeton, the tall guy, the pitcher, the Padres, the, the other one. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm always eager to tell him that he's the other Chris Young, not the actual <laughs> one. Um, but uh, yeah, so he got hired with the Cubs maybe two weeks before I did. Um, so I think he was a kind of an integral part of the equation for me getting hired. Um, and then I, I think also my connections at Yale uh, were ironically a big part of it. Um, obviously, Theo went there mm -hmm. and um, Craig Breslow, um, who's our director of pitching for the Cubs, uh, also played there. Um, so they had kind of heard about me um, through the Yale guys and through some success we'd had in Philly. Um, and we're kind of monitoring my progress, I guess, more than anything else. But they, so they kind of knew what was going on there. But um, those were kind of the, the, those three things were the connection with the Cubs. And I mean, it wasn't really something that I thought was going to be um, a possibility, especially like having 
Rossi, having Mike Borzello, who's worked with catchers for 20 years and dating back to the mid-90s Yankees teams and all mm-hmm. the success that they had. And, you know, McNapoli's obviously caught a ton of games in the big leagues and had a ton of success in that position. I, I, I didn't think there was that was a, t- a team that was going to be calling me to interview, that's for sure, but um, ended up working out um, in a positive way for me, and here we are. So That's awesome, man. Well, definitely congratulations on that. That's, that's, that's amazing. As, yeah. Being a former cubby myself, it's kind of cool, though, so having – yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. And me being me being actual uh, associate scout with the Cubs too. So. Yeah. Always. Uh, always good. Mm-hmm. Go Cubs, go. Greg, <laughs> <laughs> what's what are they? <clears throat> I know everyone seems like they're kind of in the dark with the uh, the whole um, pandemic that's going on across the country. Um, regarding some of the guys, you know, I'm sure guys are still people still have to throw. They still have to, you know, get their swings in. I'm sure, you know, guys are, are doing their stuff at home, whether it's uh, watching extra video, self-evaluation, stuff like that. Uh, you guys have anything going on as far as what they're, uh, you know, I know they they can't do certain workouts, but um, I guess what I'm, I'm saying in general with baseball being kind of put off to the side right now or put on the shelf for a couple weeks, what would you anticipate um, when you guys do come back, I mean, pitchers, spring training is a time where everyone's getting their arms in shape to be able to handle the course of the season, you know, with pitchers and catchers meetings in that, you know, is it something you think that you would see maybe three or four pitchers going to game versus, you know, still trying to build up innings during the season once it starts almost like, a, you know, a, a season that starts with kind of a modified spring training twist to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I'm not sure what's going to happen there. I, I, they, they pay people a lot more than me to make those kind of decisions. I can tell you that. Um, but I, I think that I think it's going to be a, kind of a combination of pitchers. You know, some guys trying to do what they can to stay kind of at least somewhat built up how they are right now, so then they can you know use a a one month spring training or whatever it will be um, to ramp up and get ready in a you know abbreviated amount of time or you know, what you're going to see with, I'm sure plenty of guys throughout the league and plenty of organizations is that guys aren't going to be quite as ramped up as they normally would be when the season begins. And um, we'll have to adjust accordingly. Uh, But yeah, I I just, I don't know. (laughs) That is, that's not, not for me to decide um, or me to figure out, I guess. So we'll just have to wait and see on that in that regard. So um, one of the hottest topics in catching right now, is the potential of an automated strike zone. And, um, you know, I had a talk with Eddie Rodriguez off, uh, well, just through DM one time, and he said, you're the guy when it comes to receiving. If you want to learn, pay attention to what Craig has done and, and, and the work he continues to do and, and whatnot. But I just want to hear your thoughts on, you know, where you might look at retooling this position if and when this happens, this change happens in major league baseball. Um, kind of yeah. love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting conversation to be had for sure. Um, I mean, I, it seems like it's more likely than not to happen at some point in the, in the not so distant future. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's really interesting to see if they do or not, is they allow you to steal first base. If there's a ball that goes to the backstop um, during an at bat. Um, yeah. Is I, I think the the like benefit of catching the ball 
goes way down if you can't steal first. So like, it's kind of like, Hey, if you get that nasty pitch that you just don't maybe aren't ready to handle, just don't catch it. <laughs> like ask for a new ball and throw it back. Right. Um, I, I think that's like something that's something that's really interesting. And, um, to see what happens there. I mean, obviously like umpire safety and things of that nature become more of an issue. Um, if, if that is, if that's not a, not a rule in there. Um, but I think ultimately like what's the most important things are obviously going to be blocking and throwing, um, with, a probably increased value on blocking in particular. Cause I don't think you're going to see unless there's changes to the pitcher pickoff rules, which, you know, is obviously something they've talked about as well. Um, you're not going to see it guys steal that much either. Um, so I think blocking becomes by far the most important thing. It becomes more of a, um, a position that's more like a goalie in hockey, I would say. Um, but you know, I think the short answer to that question is we don't really know exactly how that's going to change just yet. Um, you know, uh, but I think what, you know, the way I look at it is like prior to working with the Phillies, I didn't know anything about the metrics of how receiving worked and, um, you know, how catchers were evaluated and what techniques necessarily played and didn't, you know, it's something that, you know, I utilized the information that was given to me, um, to figure out a a lot of those answers. And I think that'll be something that we'll continually, um, be adjusting to and finding out as, as things go on. But I mean, I think we really take a step back towards, you know, the catcher that controls the game that, keeps the ball off the backstop that keeps right. runners in their place that can pick first, especially if pitchers can't pick as much. Um, that's the catcher that becomes really valuable. So, um, you know, that's, I would say probably where the position is heading if that's the case. And, and, and honestly, it's probably a position that becomes much more offensive as well. Um, when you're looking at it in the, in the grand scheme of things. Absolutely. It's almost like we're going back to the sixties, the seventies, when or 80s even early 90s when when the strike box wasn't on tv you know people weren't commenting on hey this guy is really good i mean yeah you could say he had soft hands oh he made the glove pop etc but yeah it's like you're going back to that old old time kind of catcher i guess you know the early generations of it yeah can he hit can he throw um can he can can he manage the game can he control the game and i guess it segues into you know as far as um, you know, this not so much sign stealing, but the conversations about, okay, in those pitcher catcher meetings that we had discussed earlier, you know, are you, are you, are you doing any sort of scouting to help your guys or, or is that part of your, your um, job curtails that you will say, okay, we're going to work on this, or this guy does this really well. Or are you taking those metrics um, on how those guys are receiving and applying it to a plan for maybe the next game or who's behind the plate currently right now, um, as far as, you know, without the strike zone, the automated strike zone, are you talking to your guys, um, even with JT going back to JT, um, to say, Hey, you know, this is a pitch you caught really well, or this was a pitch that you might've struggled on, or this is who was behind me or behind you last night. Um, we can maybe start to creep out a little bit more. And then are you taking that to JT and then JT is taking that to um, the starting pitcher for that night and so on. Do you have any of that information or is that something that is a part of, of maybe what you're doing to help, I guess, uh, increase, you know, obviously the metric levels and and whatnot with, with your catchers. Yeah. I think that what you're, 
what you're typically going to see is the, the catchers will know what the umpire strike zone looks like. And they are like, a, there's a variety of levels of how interested they are in that. Um, I, I not only going through spring training with Wilson and Vic, I can't tell you as much about how interested they are in that. Um, just because it's not really something that we have access to in spring training or we utilize in spring training. Um, it tends to be a little bit more of a skeleton, um, analytics game, um, in, in spring training. Um, I can tell you like for sure that our third base coach in Philly, Dusty Wathen had, the umpire's heat map on the iPad in the dugout that he has. Um, and JT would look at it pretty much every day. And so, like, and he knew what his heat map looked like. And he, he could tell me like prior to the game, like if he thought the game was going to go well receiving wise based on how their heat maps aligned. Um, so, you know, but what he would, what he could do is he could creep out a little bit more when he knew that there was more room away to a lefty um, or, or whatever it may be. But in terms of how he utilized that with the pitcher, no, I don't, I think the game is, is still too, there's too much human error involved um, with pretty much every pitcher in the game to, to really utilize how the umpire calls balls and strikes to the pitcher's advantage. Um, but I, I think they can, the catchers can kind of lead them um, into some of those hotter zones um, when it matches up with what the pitcher's trying to do. But at the end of the day, like the pitcher's really trying to get the hitter out. They're not trying to like have the umpire give them a strike that they're not supposed to get, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and then in, I guess to answer the other part of your question in terms of like reviewing, um, reviewing games, um, uh, you know, for me, I think that's really like, that's a big part of my job is to be able to like filter through the video and watch and help them see what's what they need to see without giving them like, I think it's really easy to get bogged down and, um, you know, watching, you know, the 60 pitches that you caught that were, you know, balls or called strikes uh, in the game and like getting worried about what the umpire did and how well you caught them and things of that nature. And, you know, so for me, like, unless the player is like really interested in it as an individual um, and really wants to dive into that information, then I'll just kind of filter through and look at it. And if I see trends that are going in negative directions, then um, I'll kind of address those situations with the player as, you know, we get ready in our pregame or, you know, if they're doing work on the side, if they're, if they're not playing that day. Um, but it's definitely not something that I feel like I need to go through with them every day throughout the course of a 102 game season and tell them like, Hey, so you caught that one poorly. You caught that one. Well, you caught that one. Well, and he called it a ball. Right. Like, so mm -hmm. that's like, that's kind of more for me. And then that allows me to, right. to coach them um, as efficiently as possible. Um, Cause at the end of the day, like, when you're talking about guys that are, especially guys like, you know, Wilson Ferris is probably going to catch a hundred games this year. Like you're talking about 10 to 15 minutes of catching a day prior mm -hmm. to the game. Like that's right. all you're doing. It, there's a little bit of verbal communication about it and there's a little bit of physical component and then they go play. And, you know, maybe you tell them some stuff in the dugout during the game, but for the most part, like they either are doing it well that day or they're not. And right. you can kind of after action review the, you know, that, and get them to the right place the next day. But it's kind of, it, there's very little work that you're doing throughout the course of the season. So you have to be really pointed with what information you give them and what mm -hmm. stuff that you do um, to get them ready for a game or get them ready on the off day for the next game they're going to play. Do, do, are there any particular catchers that you've dealt with that absolutely say that I, I live and die by the analytics or guys that just like, hey, I don't want to know tell me in a week or, you know, do you have any of those guys? Um, I think we've tended to fall in the middle of that spectrum with most of our guys. Um, like 
so Andrew Knapp is like a different case in a, in a lot of ways because he's, you know, son of a former professional catcher, Cal Berkeley educated, like really bright guy. Um, and just like a pretty intellectual person as it, as it, um, as it pertains to everything in life, not just baseball. Um, so he was more, I think he was more interested in it, but he wasn't necessarily like a guy that like he was like really diving in every day. Like he would look at his numbers every day, get an idea of how well he did. Um, but you know, for, I think every other guy we've had, I, I don't really think that's something they wanted to look at every day. Um, you know, it's harder to say with our Cubs guys, cause like what their routine is in spring training might not necessarily be their routine during the season. Um, so they, I mean, they look at it some, um, but it's just like in spring training, the, the data is inconsistent. The, the track bands aren't always set up right. The umpires are still like establishing what they perceive to be as a, you know, a in season strike zone. So there's a lot of things kind of going against like accurate framing metrics and right. um, in, in spring training. So, um, you know, wh- where exactly we're at with those two guys, like I think that remains to be seen as we go throughout the, but for the most part, I think most guys like want to be aware of it enough. So they know if they're doing, good or bad throughout the course of the season but not aware of it enough so that they need to be thinking about how they catch every pitch because i think it's just too many pitches to catch to really be thinking about like oh man i didn't catch that one well now my grade is going down i gotta catch one to catch up catch up for it like that just becomes a really you know negative environment mentally for me um that i i wouldn't really want them to be thinking about i'd really just want them to be mm-hmm. thinking like hey catch every ball as well as you can and we'll go mm-hmm. home from there and that's probably more healthy at the end of the day if you're winning and you're getting strikes for your pitcher and whether you catch it perfectly clean or not i mean you can't yeah. can't beat yourself with too many things yeah at the end of the day like if you're winning it doesn't even matter if you're getting strikes for the pitcher or not so, <laughs> right i mean that's the only thing that what, we're, the only thing that we want to be able to do is get on a float at the end of the year so um i mean that's right. that's got to be the goal and if, it, if it's stuff that's not getting you directly towards that then like is it really stuff that we need to be be worrying about and you know i think that you know most of the metrics say like that you know pitch framing is something that's gonna like help you win games in the grand scheme of things but you know it's 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 a grand scheme metric it's not a it's not a day-by-day metric it's not a pitch-by-pitch metric it's one that like it it shows the good versus the bad in a scheme you know a a sample of 50 games or more so you gotta you gotta have a sample so you just kind of you gotta make sure that the actions are matching up with that of those that traditionally do well and um you know just keep trying to be as consistent as possible working the ball back to the middle of the zone mm-hmm. beating the ball to a spot and keeping your glove below the ball i mean those are yeah, at the end of the day like those are the three things that are the most important thing i think that mm-hmm. so often we get caught up in one knee stances and gloves touching the ground and things of that nature and like <laughs> if, if you can't keep your glove below the ball if you right. can't work the ball back to the middle of your body and you can't beat the ball to the spot, none of the other stuff matters. So kind of make everything just more simplified, you know, and cause what yeah. they're going to catch over 20,000 pitches a year, probably in, in game and not including, not including bullpens and, and side work and everything else. They're going to catch, you know, your, your main guy, your starting guys going to catch 20,000 pitches or more a year. Probably. I mean, yep. it, it's, if you start nickel and diamond things too much and you just get in your head and it's, it just gets ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a delicate balance of like being intricate enough to be good, but then also being simple enough to just be able to play the game. Absolutely. That's really important. Let's talk some drills. I think uh, our listeners would love to to hear some of your drills that you like to do uh, as far as, uh, you know, receiving, if you got any blocking and throwing. So let's, uh, what are some of the drills that, that you tend to do, Craig? 
So um, I, I think from almost every one of our guys, there's some sort of progression from, you know, like a really blocked training environment into like a, you know, a less blocked training environment into a random training environment every day, pretty much. So like the way that most of our training sessions work is there's some element of like flips. And typically for me, like I want to make, like, I don't want our guys to catch baseballs and flips. If that makes sense. It's just, that's too easy, right? If you can't like manipulate a underhand toss regulation, weight baseball, then like, we have an issue at, the, at our level. So uh, we use a lot of, a lot of weighted ball stuff um, for a lot of that underhand flip stuff. Cause you can be really pointed with the location and really allow the guys to isolate a, you know, certain zone, whether it's, you know, up, down, left or right. Um, and kind of go from there. So um, we'll, we use like a, like a big, like plyo med ball, you know, the ones that are like, you know, like hand size um, for all the barehanded stuff. Cause I want them to think more about like how they, angle the ball and the force production of their hand then i do want to think about like where the pocket actually is like i don't really care if they can pinch the ball like this that doesn't really matter to me it matters if they can get their pocket on plane with the ball and work up through it with the adequate amount of force to stop the ball in the location that it's at um so so for me that that one is really good for barehanded stuff and then we'll go to like a 21 ounce like weighted baseball um which isn't actually a baseball but it's like ball size it's more like a plyo like a driveline ball um and we'll do all that stuff like a training glove with like a i have like a 31 inch wilson that will do stuff to kind of graduate towards you know catching off the machine or something like that um but then i i think from there like it goes to like what is what what do you value in terms of your your receiving work in terms of your blocking work those kind of things so for me like i like i said i value guys that can keep their glove below the ball so we're going to do a variety of drills that allow them to um, enforce them to keep their glove underneath the baseball. So um, one being uh, like, we'll do some stuff with like glove sliding um, with, you know, a traditional one where you start with your glove on the ground and just work up through the ball, sliding to the left, sliding to the right. Um, one where they'll wrap it. Like this is like, we had a catcher in camp with us last year named Rob Brantley. who's like just just got just enough crazy to make up his own drills um, in, in his head, um, which I really like. But he'll uh, he he's he, we sent him some like glove slide drills um, in over the off season last year, and he sent me some stuff back, and he's like, "Hey, I, I I made up my own glove slide. What do you think about this?" And it ended up actually being really good. But he takes like to work on the ball like at his right knee away to a righty um he starts with his glove like wrapped around his shin and outside of his right foot and then he'll slide his glove along the ground up towards the ball and then and so you're pulling back through towards the zone um which i really like um i think that angle is really positive and it really forces the catcher to get outside the ball and work it back to the middle of their body because obviously when the ball's on their right side it's much more challenging to get outside the ball than it is when it's on their left side um so i think that was really good um we we do a drill with our guys that, that I like, we call it the chicken drill, um, which we, we kind of like, the reason we call it that is like, it's like playing chicken with your car or, you know, on a, you know, on a playground as a kid, you know? Um, so what we'll do is we'll set the ball up like at ground level and we'll start with their glove on the ground uh, and we'll just feed them some balls that are at ground level. So they are forced to keep their glove on the ground and they, they can feel it come off the ground and go back to the ground to catch the ball um, if they're lifting. And then from there, they'll kind of graduate towards you know, not only being attached to the ground, but then also having some balls that are going to hit them like below the knee. 
So then they have to lift up to catch the ball that's below the knee. They also have to stay on the ground for the ball that's ground level. So then be go- going back and forth between those two pitches, hmm. they either have to lift up or they have to stay down. And it forces them not to lift up when the ball's down um, and the ball's on the ground level. So I think that one's really good. Um, but just there, it's a lot of it's a lot of things like that where we're just working on keeping their glove down. Um, you know, for me, I think that you see a lot of my catchers um, historically put their glove on the ground. And I think a lot of people see like glove on the ground and they go, all right, that's because they want to work below the ball. Right. Okay. So, but what you, what I tend to see with a lot of catchers that touch their glove on the ground is their glove bounces. So it goes to the ground level and then it comes back up to whatever height their target was set at. And then they go down and catch the ball. Um, So I like to think about the, the ground more as a constraint than a location so what that means to me is that the catcher can feel the ground Mm -hmm. so he can tell that it's in a certain location and he can work up through the ball um, because he knows that he's touching the ground so he knows that he's below the ball right so for example traditionally like like quarter turn or like glove drop or whatever it would be um, but you don't necessarily know where your glove is in space when it's in the air right Mm -hmm. so what you see with a lot of guys that struggle receiving is that as the ball goes down their glove goes up Right. And that's obviously um, going to lead to them working on top of the ball, chasing it, driving it down and then pulling it back up. Mm-hmm. Whereas if their gloves below the ball and work straight up through it, then they're going to have a lot more success. So, you know, with with our guys, we tend to use the ground with the guys that feel like, hey, when my gloves on the ground, I know exactly where it is. And it's something that I can physically touch that keeps me grounded in one location and then allows me to work to the ball. Um, so we talked a lot about with our guys is not bouncing their glove off the ground, but actually letting the glove stall out on the ground. So it's in, it's in that space for, you know, periods of time um, so that it's, it allows them to stop the glove on the ground and then work to the location of the pitch rather than just tapping the ground and coming back up. Cause I think that often leads to like that bounce where mm-hmm. it goes down, touches the ground and comes back up high and then works back down to the ball. Um, so one of the things that, that I like to do in that regard is have them start with their target up high where they would normally put it and then take it to the ground and then I'll feed the machine whenever I want to. So I can feed it as they're going to the ground. So sometimes it's just a tap and it comes back up as they catch the ball. Sometimes I'll let them go and like just settle their glove on the ground where they want it to. And then I'll feed the machine. So it's kind of their regular tempo. And sometimes I'll have them put the glove all the way on the ground and just sit it there and wait for me. Right. But what they're getting used to is they're getting used to letting their gloves stall out on the ground so they can feel contact with the ground and then work up to the baseball. And I think that's been really helpful for guys in figuring out, all right, how do I get my glove to stop and then work to the location instead of how do I just have my glove moving around and then trying to get to a spot? And that's where you end up with a lot of glo- uh, ball chasing. And I think in general, um, mm-hmm. so those will be the big things for me receiving wise. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, like a, a lot of machine, a lot of perceived velocity so we can get, you know, actual game like velocity with maybe not quite the, um, the impact of the ball going 95 miles an hour at their glove. Cause uh, obviously, you know, if you, you catch one poorly, we all know how that feels. It doesn't feel great. Right. When you get, when you get thumbed on those, it's not a lot of fun. Uh, but I want to make sure that they're, they're not afraid of getting thumbed because of the speed of the ball, but they're also having to work at game speed. Um, you know, for me, blocking wise, I think it's, it's much more about reaction than it is about technique. Um, I really don't care how they block it as long as the guy doesn't advance to the next base. Um, so we spend most of our blocking time working on um, just reaction drills. Like, well, like typically like our blocking workouts consist of, you know, 
either a right-handed or left-handed breaking ball. We'll block some like probably four or five balls right at them. We'll block four or five balls, you know, to the, um, the extension side, you know, so you're going to your left with a left-hander, you're going to the right with a right-hander. Um, and then we'll just do a lot of like block or catch. And we'll do a lot of like block catch or runner call. Right. So it's not anything like incredibly innovative, but it just keeps them reacting and thinking like, all right, where is this ball? What am I going to do? Um, and keep it as game like as possible and keep the rep number relatively low because nobody wants mm-hmm. to go and just get beat up for a hundred balls right. in the dirt. So there's just not a single catcher in the world that likes that. <laughs> I, I think the only people that like that are catching coaches. So, right. um, I really want them to be as like thinking as game like as possible and reacting to pitches when they're working on their blocking stuff. Um, and then lastly, I mean, I think the throwing stuff is like once again, really about sequence for me. So, um, things that I really like throwing wise are like, I like like a, a rock and throw. So where your right foot never leaves the ground. Um, I think it really teaches guys how to load their hip. Um, so we'll do almost all of our guys will, will start with, or will at least go to that at some times. Um, so whether that's, you know, their right foot stays on the ground the entire time, or they make their jab step and they get into like a pitcher, um, balance point position. So they force their hip to load, um, something where it's getting their, their right foot on the ground and getting them kind of attached, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense to the ground, um, is, is something that most of our guys are going to do. Um, I encourage most of our guys to throw from their knees at, um, some point during their throwing workout. Um, as I think that's really valuable in terms of creating an efficient sequence. Um, mm-hmm. cause obviously like you guys have all felt it. Like if your sequence is poor, when you're throwing from your knees, then you tend to fall over and it's not really, um, it's not as easy of a technique. Um, so that's, that's mm-hmm. tough. Um, and, and the last thing is like, I really like, like our guys to throw different lengths. So you'll see, you'll see our guys like throw, do some of their throwing to the back of the infield. You'll see them, you know, some of our guys bouncing balls in front of like long hopping balls to second base. Um, but really just feeling like what it takes to get consistent extension on the ball. Um, it, it has been really valuable for, for all of our guys. Um, yeah. So, I mean, those are, those are the big ones for me. Like once again, though, like I, I want to give our guys as much throwing and blocking wise as they need, not as much as I think they need. Um, so I, I, I take a lot of cues from what they do well in the game and kind of how they progress through spring training that tells me how much they need to throw and what kind of drill work they need to do. Like there are certain guys that just go out there and they make six throws every, you know, every third day and that's all they do for throwing and they throw great. Um, but I don't want to get, I don't want to make it too difficult or make it something that's, you know, in their head more than it needs to be. If that makes sense. Craig, do you guys use, uh, I get two quick questions. Uh, the first one, when you were talking about dropping down to the ground, um, waiting for the ball to come into you. Are you putting the glove down flat with your hand this way, or do you put it down with your thumb almost at a six o'clock or five o'clock angle? Um, I, I think there's a variety of ways you can do it. So I like this one because your glove. Yep. So for, for those guys that don't like the feeling of their pocket being a, away from the ball, this is a really positive one because their pockets, you know, facing the pitcher. Um, and so I think a lot of guys feel like this is the most concise version of that. Um, this one where their glove is flat like this, I don't think is the most accurate because I think it forces guys to do this through the ball. But in reality, their, their hand actually goes like this through the ball when they work up through it. So they got to get this, like this bone on their, if I can show it to you guys, the bone on their wrist right here, that one, if they can get that one up through the ball, that's actually what creates the plane for the pitch. Like this, 
this thought process that our thumb goes that way doesn't really exist in very few catchers. Most of the time, their thumb actually goes this way and then yeah. works up that way. So it's got to go down. I always, I always tell the kids, I always tell the kids, think of like, uh, like for the younger kids when we talk about um, getting their thumbs used to being at a six o'clock position or a five o'clock. To, to get through them, you have to think of obviously stupid things for, for kids to understand it. And I've always told them, hey, imagine you're scooping ice cream with your thumb, you know, or leading with your thumb, rolling in with your thumb in order. I guess it does the same thing in order to get that part of the hand working up through the zone and not the kids that yeah. automatically will catch it and start to start to get their thumb at a three or two o'clock position before the balls even even hit their glove. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other um, thing, too, do you guys, do you guys use any uh, any training gloves? Uh, while you're down in camp or do you, any of the, any of the other catchers use them or is it kind of mm-hmm. an organization thing or is it just a individual? Um, yeah. So we use a Wilson 31 inch trainer um, that I don't even know if they mass produce, but um, they actually started making it for Tim cousins a few years ago. Um, and our infield coach in Philly, my first year there was the Cubs infield coordinator prior to being the infield coach for the Phillies. So he brought like one off of every iteration of these Wilson training gloves that they made for the Cubs. And so he brought one of the catcher's gloves. We started using that. Um, I really like it because it's a little bit more glove like than like the, the pot, like what's the little, the little all-star the, the focus framer. Yeah. The pocket, right. Is the little, is the, the one that has very, very little padding. Right. Yeah. So it's great for like flips and things like that. But when you, if you want to like shoot a ball 80 miles an hour of a machine, I feel like it's a little, little light for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I feel like this one has a little bit more pocket than the focus framer. I feel like the focus framer is like just big enough for the ball to go in. This one's got a little bit of margin for air. So I feel like for the sake of velocity, um, this size is really good. So I know um, All-Star makes a, cm3000 that's a uh travel ball size it's a 31 they got, they got, yeah they just yeah. sent one to my son it's a 30 i think it's a 31 inch to be honest the cm3000 youth pro yeah. yeah yeah and i think that actually would be a really really good training glove for adults um you know i think the i think the focus framer and the pocket are, are better for kids because they mm-hmm. just have smaller hands in general but when you like if you try to get like um, who's like even Josh Fagley, he's a good example. He's got big hands, like, but small, like short, short fingers, but like big hands. Um, like, I don't know if he could get his hand into the pocket cause he can barely get it into the Wilson one. Um, so like that, that becomes the issue with a lot of these guys is their hands are just physically too big to put it in, right. um, to some of those training gloves. So, but we, so that's, that's the small glove that we use. Um, I like that one cause they, like you can catch a bullpen with it. You can catch, catch up a machine with it. Um, we use the, the donut, the all-star donut. Um, I really like that in terms of like pocket angling. I think it's really valuable to, to get the pocket in the right angle to catch the ball. Um, especially when they're trying to get their thumb down to catch the low pitch. If they try to attack it too flat, there's just not enough pocket access with that glove. Um, so you see the ball pop out a lot, um, which is ultimately like, that's great feedback, especially for professionals. Like they don't, nobody likes dropping the ball. So if you can give them something that'll make them drop it and they're like, all right, either a, this glove sucks or B I'm going to figure out how to catch this. So I don't look like an idiot. Um, so yeah, I think those, those are the two that I use more than anything else. Um, we've toyed around with the anchor, the all-star glove a little bit. Um, I, I, there's something I can't quite, I don't love how the thumbs weight sits in that one. Um, so I think it's, it's there maybe one iteration off, uh, still of that being something that we'd use a lot. Um, I'll just use an, like a wrist weight if I want to do something weighted with them with a glove on. Um, and then, 
what else would there be? Those are the ones that we use mainly. Uh, this has been fantastic, Craig. Honestly, it's uh, just a lot of information, a lot of really, really good information. Um, we can't thank you enough for for taking the time, especially, you know, it's, it's easy to say we all have time right now, but uh, again, um, you know, you being with your family and, and trying to figure out what the next steps are with this, this crisis that's happening right now. Again, it's just, it's been um, a real pleasure again to, to talk with you and to learn about your background and everything that you've accomplished thus far in, in your professional career. And um, I guess one question that I, I want to ask is, you know, um, personal goals. Um, what do you have going on right now with, with, with you and, and what are some things that you are looking to accomplish, um, in this coming year? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think the easy one is I'm trying to get a, uh, get a world series ring. I mean, I think that's the thing that I think we're, we're at that point now where that's, that's gotta be the goal every year. And I, and if you're, if you're doing it for any other reasons than that, and you're probably in this business for the wrong reasons, but, um, you know, it's figuring out how we can, how we can end our year on a, on a float at the, I think the the Cubs had the our hitting coach always tells me this, so it's always it's in it's stuck in my head. But the Cubs World Series parade was the seventh largest human gathering of all time in the history of mankind. So it's it's but for us that's like been a big a big goal of ours in spring training is how do you get to do that again? Um, so that would be for me that would be the the personal goal that I think I have more than anything else. I mean I think in terms of like personal goals for like personal development. I think I've probably already surpassed where I thought I was ever going to be. People would always ask me if I thought I would get into professional baseball. And I said, no, because I never played. Um, <laughs> you know, I played in college and that was it. And I didn't, I thought that was kind of the end of the line for me in that regard. Um, but, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to be put in some positions where I can do this. And, um, you know, I, I just want to figure out how I can be a part of a team that's going to win a World Series. Again, um, can't thank you enough for the time that you've taken with us. And, um, we wish you all the best. We wish uh, you and your family, uh, you know, safe and healthy uh, time as we go through this. And hopefully we can get back to some normalcy here soon and, and uh, watch you on, uh, on the tube a little bit, uh, sending guys to second base. And yeah, hopefully um, not getting anyone picked off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're going to hear it. No, yeah, um, that's for sure. No, again, thank you again, Craig. Appreciate everything. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate you guys having me on and uh, have, make sure everyone stays safe in this crazy time and um, have, have take care of your families. And um, we'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on, Craig. Absolutely. Craig. Take it easy, guys. Bye, man. Take care. Well, everyone, it's that time again for us to wrap this show up and head on home. On behalf of myself, CJ Medlin, Tyler Goodrow, and Chris News, we want to thank you all for tuning in and listening to some baseball this week with Greg Driver. We know there's multiple things you guys can tune in to listen to and keep your minds occupied with the coronavirus that's out there, and, and we really appreciate you all tuning in with us to, to take your mind away from the, the chaos that is out there. Uh, stay tuned to us next week as we have a new special guest come on. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to see who that new guest is. And again, on behalf of all of us, we thank you all for tuning in, and we'll catch you later. It's going down. The rhythm projects round the next sound. Reflects